Well, thank you, worship team, choir, and I uh, invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, first of all, this morning, Matthew 11, page 792. A question that is so obvious, it's maybe kind of silly, is this, what type of boss or leader motivates you most to do the best job possible? The one you fear or the one you like? The one who always seems angry at you or the one who seems to truly care for you? I think the answer is obvious. Both are actually motivating, but fear and anger are always short-lived motivations. It's why you find yourself looking for a new next job. Today we're going to talk about our view of God because our view of God as believers in Christ will determine our motivation for following him. So how do you view God. This is our fourth week of studying the key passages that uh, are describing what we consider at Open Door to be our core values. Just a, a quick little review of these. First of all, the Bible, we have a basis for what we believe and what we do because we believe God is actually speaking with authority to us in His Word. We talked then about the gospel. It is the core, most important truth for us individually that determines where we will be forever. So we want to keep the gospel very simple and clear, which is faith in Christ who died for our sins, rose again. Period. Faith in Christ who died for our sins and rose again. Last week we talked about the importance of what we're doing here today. And that is that we value that God said and Christ designed that we would be as a church family literally gathering together and getting to know one another because that will spur on our growth to honor him. These first three values, uh, if we pick up a copy of our, our full list of core values on the back table there, are, called, are under a category called speaking God's truth. Okay, this is this is God's truth. This is where we speak God's truth. The next three we describe as living God's grace. Living God's grace. And that first value is this that we look at today. We seek to worship and obey the Lord motivated by gratitude for God's undeserved kindness. That's grace to us through Jesus Christ. We want to live motivated, right? It matters why we do the, the things that we do. It even matters why we do the right things that we do. Our motives bring glory to God. So today we're going to look at two passages about this grace-motivated living. The first are the words of Jesus Christ himself when he invited us into a relationship with him, a grace-based relationship Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
You, you can kind of see why this has been a, a much-loved passage in, in the New Testament forever, but what is it really saying? I think Jesus is calling us to a grace-based relationship. He's inviting those who have been burdened by guilt and fear in religion into a relationship with him instead. Come to me. You're weary. You're burdened. Heavy laden. Does that describe how you feel about God? That you've been weary and heavy laden? Does it describe your view of God that you are invited into a relationship that will result in rest, confidence, peace? All around the world, most people consider themselves religious. 2015 study by Pew Research Center was finding out around the globe what religion do people identify with. Interestingly, only 16% would say None. Of those, some would be atheists and others are just kind of like nothing, whatever. But do you realize that leaves 84% of humanity that would consider themselves in one way or another religious? Are they experiencing what Jesus was inviting us to here? Are they experiencing rest in their relationship with God, confidence, or are they frankly weary of trying to measure up? Are they filled with guilt and shame and fear? And I guess the better, bigger question for us today is, if indeed you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you know you have eternity in heaven, you put your faith in Christ, are you experiencing what Jesus is offering? Rest. Rest. Or are you burdened by a view of God that is performance-based? And thus, pretty much filled with guilt and fear. To those who are weary of that kind of thinking, Jesus is calling to come to him personally. Religion is so often thinking of what others think, whereas a relationship is when we are drawn to the grace of Jesus Christ. Come to me weary and burdened. The religion of Jesus' day, Judaism, as it was then practiced, uh, was infested with a burden of law-keeping, rule-keeping. The Pharisees had heaped obligation of rules upon people up and down the streets of Jerusalem and to synagogues through Galilee and throughout the empire, really. And so Jesus one time said, when the crowds were there and disciples, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. We're the successors of great father of our religion, Moses. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. Ever felt like that? That's what someone put a burden on you. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're not helping you. Everything they do is done for people to see. That's a, that's a telling statement. They're, they're doing religion because of what they want others to think of them. And so it was a heavy, cumbersome, burdensome thing. And the Pharisees uh, 
had counted all the laws of the Old Testament. Every, every do and don't, and they came up with 613 that actually had Bible references, scripture references. They, they knew what they were to do and not to do. But then beyond that, they had added thousands of other rules, sometimes called the Midrash. For example, to apply the law of keeping the Sabbath day holy, one of the Ten Commandments, right? meaning that they wouldn't do their normal work, they had added some 39 categories of what they defined as work. And under the 39 categories of work, then they had sub-lists of, of things that people should or should not do. And for example, how many steps could they take on a Sabbath and not be considered working? In fact, how many, how many Hebrew letters of the alphabet could they write before it was considered work and you violated the Sabbath? So you see how suddenly keep the Sabbath day holy had become burdensome. And so, of course, that created some prevailing attitudes. It creates a focus on the external instead of the internal. So we begin to think of our relationship to God as not a relationship to God, but actually a way of pleasing the people around us who we identify with in religion. External. It keeps people from personal spiritual discernment because now where is that seeking of God's wisdom and a relationship with him in prayer with God? How, how, what, can you supernaturally guide me by your spirit into what is right or best for me? Creates an emotional thing, right? Burden of guilt and fear and this kind of get this, this cloud over you. And for many, it creates an arrogance, superiority, and a judgmental spirit. Because in other words, if you think you're doing pretty good with this, you can so easily look down on others who just aren't measuring up. This is the burden that Jesus was speaking to. It could be that you still are feeling so much of that burden. It's a false view of righteousness. Sometimes we call it legalism because it's a self-righteousness based on rule-keeping. You know, every Christian, every individual will naturally have in their own mindset things that you should or should not do, and thus what we kind of would prefer that everybody would do or not do, right? We have our shoulds and the should-nots. At Open Door, we've often talked about different kinds of should and should-nots. Absolutes, convictions and preferences and there are different kinds of should and should nots the preferences are I think we should have more hymns or I think we should sing no hymns that, that'd be a preference Okay, let's just keep it what it is convictions I think you should or shouldn't wear this watch that by things like that. And they could indeed be convictions based on principles of God's word that he's taught us. But then are the things that we should or should not do conviction-wise the same as what somebody else should do? But there are some legitimate shoulds and should nots. They're called absolutes because they are timelessly true, timelessly right and wrong. So Jesus here was not criticizing the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery. Don't lie, don't steal, don't envy. I mean, there are legitimate absolutes 
of should and should not. But do we have the distinctions in mind or do we just kind of like every Christian should or should not do what I think? And that is what became burdensome. And so those ideas permeated their church and divided them and can still do so. Paul was writing to a situation like that in Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He's writing to Christians after the cross. says, why are we still doing that? It's like a yoke of slavery. And the issues in the Galatian church were things like, well, one was doctrinal. You have to be circumcised to be saved. Don't pollute the gospel with adding circumcision, but they went beyond that. Should, should Jewish Christians eat with non-Jewish Christians? Are we like being too worldly we, with them? Should we keep all the ceremonial laws that Jesus has already fulfilled? Things like that. Don't be burdened by a yoke of slavery. See, the yoke was a common seen everywhere they went in an agricultural society because it's a large wooden beam that would... Uh, tie together two uh, animals, tether them as they pull a farm implement, um, working, working. And Jesus here and uh, Paul in Galatians is using burdens and yokes to say, don't add your yokes, your list of rules about convictions and preferences to other people. And so many believers in Christ are still living with that yoke, burdened by rules instead of motivated by a relationship with Jesus Christ based in grace. Let's just admit we all struggle with it. I, this week I was thinking of, maybe I should begin the message this morning by saying, hi, my name is Sid, I'm a recovering legalist. Because I think that's all of us. We all kind of have a, a list of shoulds and should nots that we kind of wish every other Christian would do. It'd make us feel so much more comfortable. But Jesus knew how exhausting that would be. Jesus knew how demotivating, how arrogant of some and how, how disheartening and defeating that would leave us. So he says, come to me, a personal relationship. All you who are weary and burdened by other people's expectations, I will give you rest. What's that rest? The rest is the full acceptance that we have through Jesus Christ. The full acceptance of where we are right now. Complete acceptance as we are right now. Because if it wasn't that, what would it be? Because every Christian is in process. Everyone in Jesus' family. So he, find rest because I gave you a free gift of salvation apart from works. And I, I gave you that right, that privilege of being my son and my daughter. So now you are in this relationship by faith Enjoy the rest. You're safe. You have peace, Paul would write. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
Already the righteousness of Christ has been put on our account eternally. Of course, we're not still, we're not already righteous. We're sinners. But since we've been justified, we already have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access only by faith in Christ. We've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You are standing, sitting this morning, in grace. Are you experiencing the rest? That is peace, that is rest. The acceptance of knowing that we are saved eternally. But what if it's a year or 10 or 40 or 60 years later that we've been saved and we're still struggling with sin. Should we still feel that acceptance? If you're breathing, you're struggling with sin. So the answer is yes, or else none of this would apply to anybody. You struggle with some prevailing sin that is different than somebody else. For one, it's greed. Can't find contentment. Another, it's lust and pornography. Another, it's bitterness, desire for revenge. I hope they pay. Another, it's alcohol, gluttony. That's food. And for all of us, it's pride, invisible spiritual cancer we deal with. And to understand that God accepts us with our abiding sin struggle. Wow. But does that mean that he just leaves us there? No. No, we're sons and daughters. He will never leave us in a state of unaddressed sin. He cares way too deeply about us and about his holiness. And so he invites us in verse 29, after you know you have rest, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus was using a term of the day, it seems, because there are, there are rabbinic writings from then that talk about the yoke of the law. The yoke of the law, as if it's a good thing, actually, they, they were writing. And it's like Jesus is kind of poking at that term. And he says, tell you what, if you're tired of that yoke of the law, I invite you to take my yoke. Try my yoke and learn from me. You see, Jesus' grace plan is not that sin is okay. Jesus' plan of grace is not lazy Spiritual living, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter if you serve or not, you're all covered by grace. That's license, that's totally abhorrent to a holy God. This is the same Jesus, the same Jesus who said, take my yoke upon you, and would say in verse 30, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Whatever that means, he's the same Jesus who said, take up your cross and follow me. Be willing to die, pay a cost that steep that you would die for me. So how can it be 
that obedience to Christ and serving Christ is both difficult like a cross and yet easy and light? I think the answer is in verse 29. Learn from me. Learn from me because I will empower you as you submit to learning from me. Learn from Christ. Playing the piano is difficult. That's why I don't play the piano. But for those who have learned to play, you will notice sometimes that it's like, looks easy to me because it just flows. Why is it easy? Why does it appear easy for some? It's because they learned from a teacher and they practiced, practiced, and practiced. That's when it becomes or looks easy. Athletes all the time are making incredibly difficult plays that seem easy as we watch on TV because of all the coaching and all the practicing. How do you learn obedience? How do you learn from Christ? We, we learn from him and take direction and we practice and practice. The word learn here is actually a form of the same Greek word that makes the word disciple because disciples are learners. Learners, followers, students. That's what the 12 disciples were. They were learning from Christ. The only way you learn from Christ is to humble yourself in submission to him. Coaches and teachers can help almost anybody at any level if they humble themselves to learn. And we can learn obedience to Christ. So learn. Are you learning from Christ? Are you, are you, are you in the scriptures to learn from him the gospels, what he said and did, and, and, and the, the letters to the church, the body of Christ? Learn from Christ. Talk to Christ. That's called prayer. Talk to him a lot. Get to know and grow around other Christians who are learning from Christ, and you will grow. And then you will begin, as you learn from Christ, then like the issue of, of absolutes, you just accept the absolute, do not commit adultery, but then you start to paying attention to what Jesus said about the adultery of the heart. And then you, you, you don't just think about, well, is it okay for Christians to do this because I really want to do it? But you begin to, to talk with Christ about, you know, should I watch that? What should I eat? How much? What should I drink? How much? Those things become part of our learning from him. And in that process of learning and growing, does Christ jump on us with condemnation? No, that's probably what some other Christians do. Or does he guide us in that process? Learn from me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart. He's the boss that is so gracious and considerate while we're learning obedience from him. The, word, the first word gentle is just, just that, calm, not harsh or de demanding, patient as can be. Learn from a gentle, learn humble or meek. The word is servant-like. You go, well, is Jesus a servant? Oh, yeah. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. 
He humbled himself like a servant, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. I've got a lot to learn about servanthood from Christ. And so we, we, we have this, you think about your view of Christ, because on one hand, we understand who Christ is. The, he is the Lord of the universe, the master. Revelation 19, he will, he will judge, he will pour out the winepress of the wrath of God upon an unbelieving, rejecting world. He is all of that. But we're his kids. And everything changes with us. He wants us to learn obedience. Part of learning obedience is discipline is needed, right? But if you learn from him, you'll find him gentle, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what he said in verse 28, come and you'll find rest. And now he describes it a little bit more. It's the, it's the result of learning from him. A, a child who enjoys their parent is a child who has learned obedience. So the task of parenting is this agonizing process of teaching obedience, insisting on obedience, trying to be consistent and teaching and affirming and loving and all but the joy of the relationship comes when they have learned obedience. And so there's this, there's this relationship that grows. You'll find that rest for your souls. This word rest is used actually sometimes of an instrument. When you release, I won't do this, when you release the strings, it go, it's, it's a rest. It's not tight anymore and it's describing how we don't have to be burdened anymore when we understand our acceptance before Christ as we, as we learn from him. And in fact, we become motivated to learn from someone like that. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a beautiful paradox to God's grace because yokes and burdens, he's, used, he's borrowing the terms from the harsh legalistic religious system of the day. He says, my yoke and burden is easy and light. Why is that? Because grace radically changes your motivation. It gives you a want to when you understand how he sees you and how he accepts you. So obeying God is not burdensome. John one of the disciples hearing Jesus that day would later, much later, write, this, this is what it's like to love God. To love God means to keep his commands. You learn submission, you obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Why? For everyone born of God overcomes the world. It's a, it's a sense of, because you're a child of God, you're born of God, you have, you have actually spiritual victory, spiritual capacity, you are changed. But his commands aren't burdens. When you really love someone, it's not a burden to, to serve them. Uh, watch a couple who really loves each other. Any age or stage of their marriage, and you will see a glad willingness to serve one another. That's the power of grace. 
Think of a good, healthy work environment. Think of people you enjoy serving with, maybe, in a church ministry. Whatever it is, you will find that the secret sauce is always grace. Because when you are assured of God's love and you love him, then his commands are an easy choice. Yeah, I'll serve. Yeah, I'll give. Yeah, I'll help. Because we're motivated by grace. But we still have this sinful nature, right? And how can denying our sinfulness and selfishness ever be easy? How can, how can living contented or patient or whatever be, be light? Not only because of our love for God, but because of his provision of the Spirit. The one who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than the one who's in the world. So Satan is just stirring up falsehood in that context. He's stirring up sin all the time. But, oh, you have a different kind of relationship with God because he, he has come to indwell you by his Holy Spirit. And so the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and, and patience and self gentleness, self-control. And see, God empowers God empowers everything he requires. He never gives directions. The Pharisees, they wouldn't lift a finger to help you keep the laws that they shook their finger at you telling you. But God doesn't do that. God helps us out of our love for him and his love for us and his spirit. He empowers it. I, I hope this encourages your relationship with Christ because I know we're all in process. We have a lot... Uh, to learn sins or weaknesses to conquer. Maybe sins that we would be horrified if people knew. Attitudes that those closest to us deal with all the time. But as a child of God, you need to know that Christ already knows the very worst about you. Probably more than you admit, right? He already knows all of that, and that's exactly how he took you, saved you. He knew all the worst. Pre and post salvation, he knew it all. So I urge you to dive deeply into scriptures, to know God's grace, and to know Christ personally. And I, I hope that maybe even this, this view of grace shocks you a bit in a, in a delightful way. Maybe after years of feeling and battling condemnation. And you can be sure that the God who loves you knows when it's time to address some area of sin that he abhors, but which nonetheless he has accepted you with to this point. And when he addresses it by his discipline, he will be exactly the right amount of firm and gentle so he would not destroy you, but that he would bring you to that state of rested soul that he longs for you to have. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, or page 937. Jesus calls us to a grace-based relationship. Come to me, you'll find rest. But we find that in this relationship, then, his sacrifice for us draws us to service for him. 
saved by grace should bring about living sacrificially motivated by that grace. So we fast forward a few decades, churches are planted, Paul the Apostle is writing to the church he knew and loved in Corinth. Verse 14, he says, for Christ's love compels us. Christ's love, that's grace. Compels, or you may have the word controls or constrains us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, that's him, and therefore all died, that's us. And if he died for all, then those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Again, you see the gospel there, right? Died and rose again. The love of Christ. Uh, it could go either way, our love for Christ or Christ's love for us. My translation says Christ's love. In other words, his love for us. I think that's the focus here. His love for us compels, constrains, controls us. It's a, it's, it's a term that's used uh, two other times in the New Testament of people who talk somebody into something. Prevailed, they prevailed upon us to something. So he says, it's like the love of Christ has talked me into doing what would seem most unnatural to me to live for him instead of for me i am i am like boxed in i'm con, i'm constrained i i am, paul is saying i've been commandeered by the love of christ and now it completely radically transformed and controls everything i do because you see paul could never get over the fact that christ had loved him when he hated Christ. First Timothy. Paul told his friend Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Kids can't believe I'm actually serving Christ. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in un- ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. See, the grace of God for him just overwhelmed and compelled him. I can't believe Jesus loved me after all I did to him. I was this angry enemy of his, and I'm going to go imprison more of the followers of Jesus in Damascus, and he shocks and awes me on that road and and saves me. And and we find then that Paul is transformed into this most courageous and ambitious preacher of all. Jesus had said, my yoke is easy, because he's gracious, right? But it's still a yoke. And what you do in a yoke is you work. And Paul says, I'm constrained to work for Christ, but by grace. 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by God's grace. I mean, there is no no other way. And God's grace hasn't been for nothing. So, God didn't waste his grace on me. In fact, I have worked harder than all the others. That is, it wasn't me, but the grace of God that was with me. So, it's an amazing spiritual equation here. So, he shows me grace, and and it wasn't wasted on me. So, I will work as hard as possible to serve God. Christ, but even then there's this humility of realizing, but even even the strength that I'm working with, that came from Christ. 
So that's still his grace that was with me. Everything, everything is by grace. And so Paul then would write how he went through beatings, stonings, hunger, thirst, shipwreck, hatred by the Jewish leaders he had once admired. The question for us is, does God's grace compel, control, constrain, and motivate us to work for him? Do we embrace the yoke of serving Christ? Which on one hand is easy, because we have this amazing love and appreciation for what he did for us, but it is work. But then as we work, we find that he gives us the strength to do exactly what he asks us to do. So do you have a a mindset, a spiritual work ethic that flows from the grace of God. It'll be based in the gospel, verse 14 and 15. The clear and simple gospel, he died for all, first of all. We are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. That's us. We died. And then verse 15. So that those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So he died, and so we died. He lives, and so we live. Our lives are forever completely linked with the gospel truths that he died for our sins and rose again. We are so completely linked with his death and his resurrection. When he died, we died. What does that mean, we died? Our old self the who we were before Christ or who we would even have been without Christ is dead. That's why Paul would write, put off the old self. Why would you keep doing the things that you would do as an unbeliever? That would be like dragging along a corpse of yourself, just to be blunt. it's, It's very miserable. Made me think, High school English class, literature class. The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. I had to look it up because I don't remember it, but that's, the, that's, the, that's where you get the albatross thing from because this sailor killed an albatross who was supposed to be a good luck omen, so he was condemned to always walk around with a dead albatross hanging around his neck. Okay. Miserable. And if you want to be miserable on this planet as a Christian... Put your faith in the grace of Christ for salvation and then walk around the rest of your life dragging the corpse of sin and defending it. I'm still right. He, she's still wrong. Nothing more miserable than a Christian saved by grace and not constrained, compelled by that grace to live for Christ. He died for all, therefore we should just leave it behind in the rearview mirror. Look three verses later, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. It's all new now. You have a new identity. It's like an adopted child on that day gets a new name, a new identity, a new family, a new inheritance. Everything is, is theirs now. That's the new you. And with that, spiritually, comes a new drive, a new want to. You're brand new inside. You are driven by grace. 
He accepts you, he knows your past, and he didn't blink when he saved you. He knows your continuing sin struggles, and he firmly is devoted to you, to love and to discipline you. He is always on your side. Like even parents who are estranged from children keep loving those children they bore, how much more a Savior who gave us new birth through his sacrifice. So the life we live, we live for him. He was raised again. You are alive forever because Jesus rose from the dead, right? Amen? That's the gospel. You are alive forever. So how are you going to use the life that he rescued you from, the, 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 the condemnation that he rescued you from? Why would we live for ourselves? See how we start to think what is logical spiritually. That's how we should think. Illogical by every other measure, but it makes total sense to live for the one who died and, and was raised again. We're so used to selfishness of, like, like Pastor Seth mentioned, we like our coffee and you do what you want for breakfast and, and what you do with your career and what you do with your money and what you want from your marriage, what you want from your family relation. We do everything by nature for ourselves. What could ever reverse that bent? Only the power of the grace of God. I believe it's the grace of Jesus Christ that has compelled our missionary families to leave life here to serve where they serve, doing the gospel witness to others. I believe it's the grace of Christ that has motivated so many of you to serve somebody else or if you have been extraordinarily served by someone in the body of Christ it will have been grace that motivated it as you write checks to church or ministry as you take on ministry positions or rotations what else could motivate us except the grace of Christ and then as we do face those temptations again only the grace of Christ could motivate us to say no. If we could picture him, come to me. And we go to him, and we find grace to help in our time of need, it's called. That's what he does for us in temptation when we go to him. And he would smile at us with affirmation and say, yes, you can say no to this, because I've raised you to life, and I've given you all the resources you need through the Spirit. And, and only grace could give you joy when it's a matter of giving up your time for somebody else who needs your time. And, and to come to Christ and, and, and he would say, yes, you're, you're imitating my selflessness because I left heaven to earth to serve you. Only God's grace can motivate our obedience lifelong. He's the boss but he's the boss that does not intimidate with fear and guilt, but who draws us to reset our motives day by day by day for doing what he calls us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, continually refresh our minds with uh, the, the motive of grace. Thank you for your undeserved kindness and patience with my sin and selfishness. 
remind us, Lord, to come to you again and again to be impressed, appreciate, and cleansed by your grace. Help us, Lord, to uh, think about the, the why we do what we do when sometimes we are even consistently doing the right things that we would think of our relationship to you, come to you, and uh, find that rest and then that uh, power to take your yoke, to, to live sacrificially uh, for you. In Jesus' name, amen.